Warning, this show may contain adult content, language, and humor and is intended for mature audiences. If that's not you, please stop listening now. Nothing you hear on Sex and Science Hour is intended as medical advice, financial advice, legal advice, therapy, or really anything other than entertainment. Please take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Oh, and if you're hearing us on an affiliate network, the ideas and views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the network you're listening on or of any sponsors or affiliate products you might hear about on the show. Now that all that's out of the way, let's start the show. This is Sex and Science Hour with Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Get your freak on. Well, that was the theme music that people dance to in the shower, and this is Sex and Science Hour. Welcome to the show. <laughs> oh, poet, and you didn't know it. All right. I, yeah, I guess I just kind of made that up on the fly. I never th- think of what I'm going to say for the opening of the show until right before, and then it just comes out of my mouth. Yeah, I do. I'm the same way. I think yeah. that's the best way to do it. So yeah. anyway, <laughs> we're glad you're joining us this Fuck, week. we'll do it live. Fuck it, we'll do it live, in the words of uh, Bill O'Reilly <laughs> or yeah. something like that. You know what else is in the words of Bill O'Reilly? Oh, he sucked on her ear. And <laughs> oh, he wrote that, that erotica yeah, thing, didn't he? Yeah. What, what was that? I didn't really hear I, about I, that. I forget what the title of it even was, but I just remember reading like excerpts from it, and it was so terrible. Like This guy had no... I, I don't think he's ever made love. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad. Yeah, talk about the worst person you could possibly think of oh. to write an erotica. Like Some people think they're just an expert on everything, but then it's clear that that's not the case, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> No. And there's one area where you really need to be an expert, and he ain't there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, um, you know, there's lots of people. I I narrate audiobooks, and I'm a voice actor. And um, I use the uh, ACX, the Audiobook Creation Exchange, which is the back end for Audible, where Mm -hmm. independent producers and um, authors can meet up and uh, produce audiobooks that then end up on Audible. I've produced a lot of audiobooks that way. Um, and there is a lot of stuff that's posted for auditions there, like books that the authors want to be made into an audiobook. That is just the most terrible erotica you've ever read. <laughs> it's so bad, it's funny. Like, so you know, they literally have like lizard and dinosaur and orc erotica. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Clark, I know what you're my talking friend, about. Yeah. Who's also a narrator, she sent me a she sent me a, a screenshot of orc erotica the other day on ACX. Was it orc or ogre? No, orc. Orc? Yeah, definitely orc. Orcs can I be hot. I remember because I was like, what actually is an orc? Yeah. Orcs can be hot. <laughs> there was they like can... a picture of a big green Hulk thing. Like yeah. Like yeah. an incredible Hulk. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> so you can find all that uh, erotica on audible.com as well. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not why we're here. I have an interesting story to open up the show. I'm sorry to say it's not as good as... Um, you orc know, erotica. O'Reilly erotica. Or O'Reilly, yeah. Hmm. But it is an interesting intellectual <laughs> issue. You just burped into the microphone. <laughs> I so did. I was trying not to. I'm wow. sorry. Wow. I right. was just going to keep rolling and not say anything about well, it. But Rock and roll. Yeah. It's seltzer. It's not just like, you know, a disgusting. I, I feel the <laughs> need to explain myself now, but I'm just going to keep going and not apologize for All my right. biological functions. Anyway, um, 
Can an, an artificial intelligence algorithm copyright something that it creates? <gasps> this was sent in by, uh, I'm a listener. They said, I'd love your thoughts on this article from Forbes. Can an AI algorithm copyright what it creates? And uh, from Forbes here, the notion of what constitutes a person and who can claim copyright over materials they produce has been in the news over the last several years through the unusual case of Naruto, the Indonesian macaque monkey who snapped a selfie of himself and launched an ongoing legal battle over the extent of copyright and whether he owns the copyright to his own work or if it is even copyrightable at all. If monkeys can own copyright over their own works or if animal-produced works cannot be copyrighted at all, how might these developments affect the world of artificial intelligence in which AI systems begin to produce novel outputs? As AI systems of the future are able to create new works, who owns what they create? And could AI systems be granted the right to profit from their own work? Now, that is just the introductory paragraph. I think we could talk about that for the whole first segment. Yeah. But let me just back up and explain the story about this monkey. So there was a very interesting case where there was a guy who was a nature photographer and he went to a zoo and he dropped his camera or placed his camera intentionally mm -hmm. in front of a monkey. Right. And the monkey picked up the camera and unwittingly snapped a selfie. Pretty good one. And it was a pretty cute selfie. It yeah. was a good one. Yeah. And it ended up on the cover of some like National Geographic or something. It ended up like being a widely uh, published photo. Right. And so then, of course, it generates some... Um, uh, royalties or something. Somebody was going to get a payout from the wide distribution of that photo. And the person whose camera it was tried to claim that they held the copyright of that photo. But then somebody sued him and said, well, no, I don't have to. I, I don't know who tried to sue who, but some somewhere there was a lawsuit in there. Mm -hmm. And the, the issue went to court. And somebody tried to argue that, no, in fact, the monkey is actually the owner of the copyright. This guy doesn't own the copyright. The monkey owns the copyright because the monkey pressed the button and took the picture. Well, how convenient. The monkey's probably never going to take anybody to court. Yeah. <laughs> or go to the bank and yeah. withdraw his royalty <laughs> payments. So. so then it sparked this whole debate about, well, if you, you know, if you even acknowledge the concept of intellectual property to begin with, which not everybody does. Hmm. And we're going to talk about that. Um, but if you even acknowledge it to begin with, you know, who owns it in these in these gray areas? Right. Now, you could certainly say that. Without that camera, the the human was the one who provided all the materials and the setup for the monkey to take that picture. All the monkey did was press the button. But you could argue that about like an assistant, too. You know, if he had an assistant or something and, you know, he provided the camera and is and said, oh, yeah, take this picture. And the assistant snapped the photo. Uh, who would only copyright there? I don't know. But it's it's almost like. I could see a case for both sides. Right. Mm -hmm. If you're going to claim some kind of copyright, I could see a case for the monkey owns it. I could see a case for the guy owns it. Because it was from his camera. Yeah. But I think there's actually a stronger case for just the whole idea of intellectual property is, to me, I think it's it's behind the times, kind of silly. I yeah. think there's other ways to solve the problem of how do artists get paid for their work than copyright uh, enforcement and restrictions. And copyright doesn't work, folks. Um, <laughs> in case you've been living under a rock... If, have you ever downloaded a movie from the internet? Have you ever, in the days of VHS tapes, did you ever copy a copy something onto a blank tape? Maybe even distribute it, give it, blown it to your friend or something like that? Right. Um, 
you know, as every new technology that comes out that has some kind of DRM, digital rights management or copyright protection on it, people find a way to get around it. And often it's just because of convenience, right? Like if it's more convenient to just download an album from the Internet, um, from a torrenting site, than it is to go through the checkout process and put your credit card in iTunes and then pay 99 cents for each song, like it, people just are going to say, oh, you know, F that. I think I'll just go to the torrent site, right? Right. So, or the other way around. That 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 works both ways. Where, yeah. where obviously people pay plenty for Netflix when they could get all the Netflix content on torrent sites, but it's just so easy to use Netflix as right. they, that they Netflix pay for is it. a great example of, of somebody who's made it convenient for people to pay, and so people do. Right. Yeah. So I mean I think it can it can be done. And we're seeing examples of people who do it well, monetization, content monetization, and people who don't do it well. Um, sure. You know, Patreon is another example, right, of uh, podcasters who are monetizing their podcasts with Patreon and other content creators. Oh, yeah. Musicians, all kinds of people that, that are on board with that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think, you know, you have to threaten your customers with lawsuits or legal action to get them to pay for your stuff. You know, I, I don't think that sets up a very... Um, I think it sets up an adversarial relationship between the content creator and their customers or the record company or whoever and their or the publisher and their customers well, to, to bring in legal action into the matter, you know? Sure. Right. But I mean, I think I think these couple cases that we're talking about here, the AI and the monkey, you know, kind of show it for the farce that it is. It's like, well, wait a minute. You know, if it's such great legislation, it should be very cut and dry to be say, clear who owns oh, that copyright, well, yeah. it goes to them. And then, like, it's not. I mean, and you can say, well, but we're talking about, you know, bringing in new persons, you know, like and what I mean by persons is a legal term, meaning that they have a. Well, not a legal term, but it's a very specific term, meaning that they have sapience, not just sentience. Uh, and so, you know, you're bringing in new kind of persons. I understand that could that could get into some degree of confusion, but. Still, I, I think it shows just how bad the laws are. I mean, the, the, you know, this could we could do the whole show on why copyright bad. You <laughs> we know, but, we could, yeah, but we're not going to. But yeah. we'll do one segment anyway. Um, so let me read on here. The case of the so-called monkey selfie is a fascinating one when extended to the world of AI. Today, AI systems are still largely human-guided, meaning that even creative algorithms like Google's Deep Dream are still dependent on the input of a human artist to select both the training images to build the neural network and the image to manipulate. What happens, however, as deep learning algorithms become increasingly capable, eventually operating more and more without human oversight? Imagine a future version of Deep Dream that is fully autonomous and sits by itself coming up with completely novel imagery that has never been seen by human eyes and which was not guided or suggested by any human. Who owns the rights to those images? If an art company uses such an algorithm to produce new works, can it cop copyright those works for itself, or are the works entirely unprotectable? Or could the AI itself own those works and generate profit from them that it could then use to improve itself? So you want to talk about that paragraph real quick here? Sure. Yeah. Um, AIs don't need to pay rent, don't need to eat. <laughs> you know, they don't need money. I guess they could use money as one tool or resource to improve themselves and, like they said, add new functionality or whatever. But um, it's not like kind of they don't have that same drive of the starving artist, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they have to have money or else they're going to eat. So, I mean, I don't think AI necessarily needs to profit from works. Maybe profit would be one motive that would act as sort of a natural selection tool for AI to get better or mm. something like that. But uh, it's not necessary. And why not just have these works be, you know, um, what is it? Creative Commons or something. It's yeah, really just usable. public domain. And yeah. then humans can do whatever they want with them. 
I mean, sure. why do we have to have anybody have a copyright on these things? So, yeah. anyway, Sex and Science Hour is copyright Brian and Stephanie 2017 and all rights reserved. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> you should share our show wherever. We have a Creative Commons license on SoundCloud, I believe. So, yes. You know, <laughs> we don't want to, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't want to see my customers. All right, there's more coming up here. Segment two is on the way. A sheep born from an artificial womb. Stay tuned. You'll want to hear about this. Hey, folks. This is Stephanie here from Sex and Science Hour. I just want to do a little plug for my partner, Brian's book, because I'm so proud of him. He has recently released his first book. It's called Dark Android 2017, the, gu- the guide to a user's guide to securing your Android smartphone and reclaiming your privacy or yeah, something. That's Is about that right. close enough? That's close enough. Yeah. <laughs> but right. Dark Android 2017, that'll get you the hookup. Okay. So how do people find it? Darkandroid.info. It's all you have to type in. It'll even go through the Sex and Science Hour link. How about that? Oh, very convenient. Now back to the show. This is Sex and Science Hour. Now, wouldn't it be great if we could create new things, humans, animals, what have you, without actually having to do all that work of giving birth? Ladies, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Um, (laughs) I don't know, because I've never done it, but... (laughs) Some of you out there know how much work it is to carry a fetus to term and give birth to it. Or even to try to get pregnant and not be able to or whatever. Sure. Or to uh, try to have a successful pregnancy. There's all kinds of problems that can go. And uh, there's all kinds of risks to the health of the mother. I mean, actually, you know, as much as there are risks to birth control methods, like, you know, taking birth control pills for women, um, it can increase the risk for blood clots and so forth. Pregnancy is way more risky. <laughs> yeah. As far as life threatening stuff, you know, increasing blood clots and a whole host of other ailments that you could potentially get. So, um, you know, it's not it's not a trivial thing to give birth. And not everybody wants to do it. And um so not everybody can do it either. You know, what if something happens to the mother and she can't, for whatever reason, carry the pregnancy to term, but the fetus is fine and it would continue growing if it could. So from the verge, we've got an artificial womb successfully grew baby sheep and humans could be next by Rachel Becker. The lamb oh spent four weeks in the external wombs and seemed to develop normally. And they've got a picture of a sheep that looks like it's kind of enclosed in saran wrap almost. <laughs> Would that make it a Sherson or a sheeple? <laughs> no, we have to explain that. We always joke because there's this thing, you know, like Alex Jones or conspiracy theorist people types Mm -hmm. they will say oh my god everybody is so dumb the population is just so dumbed down they don't know what they're doing they're just blindly following their leaders like sheep they're a bunch of sheeple right they're not people they're sheeple right and now we always wonder what is the singular form of that (laughs) word is it would you be a sherson yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh something to ponder anyway Inside what looked like oversized Ziploc bags strewn with tubes of blood and fluid, eight fetal lambs continued to develop, much like they would have inside their mothers. Over four weeks, their lungs and brains grew. They sprouted wool, opened their eyes, wriggled around, and learned to swallow, according to a new study that takes the first step toward an artificial womb. One day, this device could help bring premature human babies to term outside the uterus, but right now it's only been tested on sheep. 
It's appealing to imagine a world where artificial wombs grow babies, eliminating the health risks of pregnancy. But it's important not to get ahead of the data, says Alan Flake, fetal surgeon at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and lead author of today's study. It's complete science fiction to think that you can take an embryo and get it through the early developmental process and put it on our machine without the mother being the critical element there, he says. Instead, the point of developing an external womb, which his team calls the biobag, is to give infants born months too early a more natural, uterus-like environment to continue developing in, Flake says. The biobag may not look much like a womb, but it contains the key parts, a clear plastic bag that encloses the fetal lamb and protects it from the outside world, like the uterus would, an electrolyte solution that bathes the lamb, similarly to the amniotic fluid in the uterus, and a way for the fetus to circulate its blood and exchange carbon dioxide for oxygen. Flake and his colleagues published their results today in the journal Nature Communications. Flake hopes that the biobag will improve the care options for extremely premature infants who have, quote, well-documented, dismal outcomes, he says. Prematurity is the leading cause of death for newborns. In the U.S., about 10 percent of babies are born prematurely, which means that they were born before they reached 37 weeks of pregnancy. About 6 percent, or 30,000 of those births, are considered extremely premature, which means that they were born at or before the 28th week of pregnancy. That is pretty early. These infants require intensive support as they continue to develop outside of their mother's bodies. The babies who survive delivery require mechanical ventilation, medications, and IVs that provide nutrition and fluids. If they make it out of the intensive care unit, many of these infants, between 20 to 50 percent of them, still suffer from a host of health conditions that arise from the stunted development of their organ systems. So parents have to make critical decisions about whether to use aggressive measures to keep these babies alive or whether to allow for less painful comfort care, says neonatologist Elizabeth Rogers, co-director of the Intensive Care Nursery Follow-Up Program of UCSF Ben Woff Children's Hospital, who was not involved in the study. One of the unspoken things in extreme preterm birth is that there are families who say, if I had known the outcome for my baby could be this bad, I wouldn't have chosen to put it through everything. Mm. To put her through everything. That's why for decades, scientists have been trying to develop an artificial womb that would create a more natural environment for a premature baby to continue to develop in. One of the main challenges was recreating the intricate circulatory system that connects mom to fetus. The mom's blood flows to the baby and back, exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide. The blood needs to flow with just enough pressure, but but an external pump can damage the baby's heart. To solve this problem, Flake and his colleagues created a pumpless circulatory system. They connected the fetus's umbilical blood vessels to a new kind of oxygenator, and the blood moved smoothly through the system. Smooth enough, in fact, that the baby's heartbeat was sufficient to power blood flow without another pump. So the baby's heartbeat uh, powers all the circulation. That's interesting. All I'm picturing is that scene out of The Matrix, you know, and Morpheus saying, I have have seen fields, Neo, entire fields where humans aren't born, they are grown. And (laughs) like, like that's all that's going through my head this, this whole time. The next problem to solve was the risk for infections, which premature infants and open incubators face in the neonatal intensive care unit, or NICU. That's where the bag and the artificial amniotic fluid comes in. The fluid flows in and out of the bag just like it would in a uterus, removing waste, shielding the infant from infectious germs in the hospital, and keeping the fetus's developing lungs filled with fluid. 
Flake and his colleagues tested the setup for up to four weeks on eight fetal lambs that were 105 to 120 days into pregnancy, about equivalent to human infants at 22 to 24 weeks of gestation. So this would be the third... uh, This would be like about halfway through the the baby's half done. Mm. (laughs) About a little more than half done. After the four weeks... Got to bring the oven up to about 450. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's right. (laughs) To get the bun out. Yeah. After the four weeks were up, they switched onto a regular ventilator like a premature baby in a NICU. The lamb's health on the ventilator appeared nearly as good as a lamb the same age that had been delivered by cesarean section. Then the lambs were removed from the ventilator, and all but one, which was developed enough to breathe on its own, were euthanized so the researchers could examine their organs. Oh, too bad. We could breathe on its own, but they had to <laughs> dissect it so they could look at its lungs. Yikes. Their lungs and brains, the organ systems that are most vulnerable to damage in preterm infants, looked uninjured, and as developed, they should be a lamb that grew in a mother. As developed as they should be in a lamb that grew in a mother. Of course, lambs aren't humans, and... <laughs> Hilariously, they took that sentence, of course, lambs aren't humans, uh-huh. and they blew it up and they made it into like a quote, like a Twitter quote. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, <laughs> tweet this, of yeah. course, lambs aren't humans. Yeah. Well, okay, so. Uh, but oh, sorry, of course, lambs aren't humans and their brains develop at a somewhat different pace. The authors acknowledge that it's going to take more research into the science and safety of this device before it can be used on human babies. And they've already started testing it on human-sized lambs that were put in bio bags earlier in pregnancy, and they're monitoring the few lambs that survived after being taken off the ventilator to look for long-term problems. So far, the lambs seem pretty healthy. I think it's realistic to think about three years for first in-human trials, Blake said. Well, so, you know, this is something that I remember wondering about years and years ago was why the hell are sheep always used in these? I know the answer, but why the hell are are sheep always used in these kinds of experiments? And you start to notice it's it's in very particular kind of experiments that they end up getting used for. And pretty much what I found out, I asked around, was that. Yeah, they sheep are very like they're 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 very popular to be used for pregnancy and you know this, these sorts of you know birthing experiments and whatever else uh, because they have a pretty short gestation period. Physiologically, they actually have some interesting similarities to humans. They're susceptible to a lot of the same diseases that humans are, mm. so which is a very important thing to be testing for, especially when you know we're talking about the birthing process, because uh, you know, especially an unnatural one, because there's a lot of studies on that. That like if you don't get the uh, bacteria from you know a woman's you know vaginal cavity, right? I mean, you, you know, this baby could could have uh, some immune system problems later on in life, right? Um, so so that's you know that's kind of an important thing for it. Um, I thought it was because of the size, because I think. Well, that's it, the other yeah. part too. Is that when they're born, they're very similar in weight, in size, yeah, to humans, yeah, to yeah. humans. So that's a big part of it as well. But. Well, I think this is really interesting and cool. I admit, I was having fantasies of like, oh yeah, we don't have to give birth anymore. We just put them in this bag, <laughs> but it's actually for preterm babies, and that's a hell of a good. And thing just have too. them all be women. So I'm happy no. with that. <laughs> no, don't have that. What? Oh my god. <laughs> hey everybody. 
Now, by now, I hope you know about the exciting new project that Brian and I are working on. If you listen to Sex and Science Hour, this should interest you, and you can be a part of it. We are working on an erotic anthology called Paleoerotica, and yes, folks, it's just like it sounds. These are This is Paleolithic porn, stories from prehistory about humans getting it on in a completely smartphone-free world, yeah, <laughs> and a place so where all you had to do was look up at the stars own. and get it on. Ooh. So if that interests you, and you have something new and different that you'd like to write about that would make a good contribution, send it to us. You can send it to bbs at sovereigntech.com, S-O-V-R-Y-N tech.com. Yes. The story should be between 1,000 and 17,000 words, and we'd like it by November 30th. But of course, if you have it earlier, then the better the chance that it'll get in. So Paleoerotic Anthology, we hope to hear from you. Now, back to the show. This is Sex and Science Hour. Welcome to the sex segment. Ooh, it's time. I have got a great article for you today. This is from the independent.co.uk, but the author is the real star because it's she's writing it about her own work. Her name is Sarah Greenmore, and she's a sex worker. Right and on. And this is about a day in her life <laughs> at work. Um, now, we're going to probably have lots of comments about this, but first I just want to read it to you. I'm a sex worker in a legal brothel. Here are the biggest misconceptions about what I do. Uh, So Sarah says, I've been working in Nevada's legal brothels for almost a year and a half now. In this time, I've learned a lot about sexuality, psychology, and relationships. My job is a mix of customer service and fantasy fulfillment, and I love it. It suits my needs and allows me financial stability I never had access to before. However, what I've noticed since I started this career is that there is a lot that the general public doesn't seem to get about sex work. Here are some of the biggest misconceptions. One, sex work is lazy and easy. Oh my goodness. Brian, you have a t-shirt that perfectly addresses this. What does your t-shirt say? So sex work is real work. Yes. Sex work is work. Yeah. Period. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That shit ain't easy. It is not easy (laughs) or lazy. So I have great respect for sex workers because what they do is work. Yeah. Period. Um, She says, I describe my job many ways, but never as easy. I work a 12 to 14 hour shift each day. And during this time, I'm juggling my four social media accounts, two professional email addresses, posting on multiple industry message boards, scheduling client appointments, arranging radio interviews, writing essays online and cleaning meticulously. I'm also meeting countless visitors of the brothel, taking them on tours, gauging their interest, pulling teeth to figure out exactly what they desire, and then negotiating prices. That's before the sex even starts, which I'm generally doing most of the physical workload, putting emotional labor and also putting emotional labor out to make my clients feel at ease, listening to their deepest confessions, and trying to make sure they get their money's worth. Sex work is a physically intimate therapy session for most of our clients. Many workers who work independently also have to schedule hotel rooms, vet their clients to make sure they aren't dangerous, run their own websites, and handle marketing. So everything she's saying, absolutely true. I narrated a book called Getting Screwed, Sex Workers, and the Law by Allison Bass. It is a great book. I mean, Allison just did amazing journalism. She went around and talked to just dozens of sex workers from all different walks of life and all different uh, places around the world that they were from. And she really got a good variety, I think, of different sex workers at like, you know, all kind of 
catering to all different types of clientele, some that were working in the Nevada brothels. There was actually a whole chapter about the brothels in Nevada and um, interviews with various women who had worked there and what their experience was like. And yeah, absolutely. They do have to work like um, they can't leave the place except like once a week. They're almost like on lockdown there. And they have very strict rules about, you know, how much alcohol they can consume. It's not right. much. Um, you know, they have to pay for, you know, certain things. Sometimes they have to pay for their own room and board um, and their meals. And, of course, they're doing work the whole time. And she's going to get into, like, more of the stuff that they have to do. But they have to get tested every week for STDs. Every week! Yeah, it's serious. And they probably have to pay for it themselves. So, they, you know, there's expenses that are associated with it. And regardless, she's saying it's still very profitable. But it is a lot of work. There's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through. Not just anyone can do this. And not just anyone would, would want to do it, right? Because, like, as she's saying, there is a lot of psychological support that's involved Clients often expect you to listen to their confessions, right? And to just to do work to put them at ease is what she's saying. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you they're going to expect the sex worker to be the one who's kind of leading to make them feel comfortable oftentimes or just acting to fulfill their fantasies. Sure. So, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of emotional work involved um, and physical work. Number two, myth. Sex workers spread disease. In Nevada, all of the state's thousands of legally working sexual com companions have mandatory STD testing every week. There has never been a case of HIV reported in the brothel system in Nevada. Never, never been a case of HIV. You know, I, I hear this one way too often, and it's one of the oldest, because this is the oldest profession, right? Yeah. This is one of the oldest accusations in the book, and it comes out every single time. And let me tell you who actually spreads disease. Usher spreads disease okay oh be careful you don't want him to to, to sue you well this that. is this is the claim that's being made i mean by so, people the reason you're saying that is there's been some cases in in the news recently where women have come forward and said that that he infected them with herpes right yeah. and they then they sued him and, and he settled right yeah is that what happened yeah, that's that's kind of the, the claim going around. So that's my understanding of the story. But I'm just saying, no, it's your everyday people or maybe even your celebrities or something else. They're the ones that spread so much disease. People that make this their life's work. Are you kidding? You think they're not careful as fuck with what they're doing? Yeah. You're nuts if you think otherwise. I think sex workers, um, you know, obviously there's different types of sex workers, right? If you're being, if you're doing survival sex work because you're homeless, you know, like maybe you're a teenager and your parents found out you're queer and they kicked you out of the house and you have nothing you can do for work right. except sex work and you, or you run away or something. Or if you're like, you know, transgender, you can't get a job and you're like really poor and there's different reasons people would do survival sex work, but that puts them in a situation where clients can pressure them and say like, hey, I don't want to use a condom what are you kidding me mm -hmm. um so obviously there's different types of sex workers and different types of sex work but um yeah for for the ones in nevada no question i mean it is so paranoid to to get tested every week um even the porn industry has has testing mandates but also like sort of self-imposed like standards about oh, yeah. how often they get tested oh, yeah. for stds and you know they don't even test that often <laughs> yep so um and, she, and not only that but she also says they use condoms for all of their services including condoms for blowjobs and dental dams for cunnilingus brian have you ever used a dental dam or a condom for a blowjob no 
Uh, neither have I. <laughs> I will just say that. <laughs> I've used them for plenty of other things, but not not for um, oral sex. And yeah. so, I mean, I think that's extremely scrupulous and careful. Yeah. And not, you know, not every client is going to be okay with that. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, are you kidding me? You want me to wear a blowjob, a condom for a blowjob? That doesn't, that's not going to feel good. But there are ways to make it feel better. You know, you put lube inside of the condom. You can roll it on with your mouth, I guess. Not that I know about this from experience. But <laughs> <laughs> um, not, I'm just saying, not a lot of people out there in the general population who are sleeping with each other and fooling around with each other, mm-hmm. even people who are very sexually active, swingers, it's not very common to see condoms and dental dams used for oral sex, but yeah. they're saying that they do this in the brothels. We take our health seriously. Just like a massage therapist or a labor contractor, if our bodies aren't in top shape, we can't pay our bills, feed ourselves, or support our families. To jeopardize our health and our clients' health for one client's desire could ruin our reputation and cost us jobs, cost us our jobs. So we take many precautions to protect ourselves and our clients. Number three, myth. Only creeps, losers, and desperate guys visit sex workers. You'd be surprised, says Sarah, at the range of people who walk through our doors. We we entertain middle-aged couples looking to spice up their love life, young military veterans struggling to transition back into civilian life and dating, respectable businessmen, lawyers, doctors, professionals who are overworked without time for dating, Men with Asperger's syndrome who find navigating traditional social relationships challenging and confusing. For many, seeing a sex worker is more than just the act of sex. We provide a safe space to be comfortable with sexuality and physical intimacy. Clients are able to let their barriers down and have a connection with a near stranger, and it's often highly therapeutic for them. We're also teachers, guiding our virgin clients through sex and intimacy for the first time. Our clients treat us with respect and adoration and are as kind to us as we are to them. Shaming our clients demonizes their sexuality, which is repressive and judgmental. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there are like kind of activists about this. They they love their clients and their clients love them back. This is this is just one of the most under-realized and I don't think underutilized, but I, I think in the popular mindset it is. Of what sex work can do. Like for a lot of people, it is their literal training wheels for how how they learn how to have sex and the full experience of sex. Yeah. It being beyond PIV and all these things. And you're learning from the absolute best. You're learning from professionals. Absolutely. You know, and it, it's it, it's so crazy. You cra- wouldn't hire somebody who's never played football as your football coach, right? Right. Uh, you yeah. want somebody who plays it every day, right? Yeah. Same thing for sex. Yeah. I mean, that that is such a beautiful aspect of the industry that just does not get enough attention. Just how the, these people are veritable, you know, they're professional sex workers, but they're amateur sociologists and they're yeah. phenomenal at what they do. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, please continue. Absolutely. Um, number four, sex workers hate their jobs. There's a saying that goes, choose a job you love and you will never have to work a day in your life. Somehow that went out the window with sex work, at least in society's eyes. We chose this job because it suits our needs financially. And to some, it's on a spiritual or sexual levels. Others, it's simply an income source and there's nothing wrong with that. Our work is deeply personal and intimate. We see people at their most vulnerable when they're naked and expressing their innermost desires. These desires may have been hidden away for years or even decades. The relationships I develop with my clients are genuine, and I'm happy to see them leave basking in a glow, relaxed and relieved. Making people feel good about themselves brings me a profound sense of happiness. 
I have heard on so many occasions, thank you, I needed this. I've never felt more relaxed. Being able to make my own schedule and be in control of my own small business allows me incredible freedoms. I can take off three months, six months, two years from work and know that my employment will always be welcomed back. I don't drink heavily and I don't use drugs to get through a shift. I never dread going to work. So she's saying that she loves her job. Now, I I realize, I know she's saying that this is a myth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's certainly true that some sex workers love their jobs. Yeah. However, I also want to be sensitive to and recognize the fact that some people don't feel that they have as many options to them open for employment. And it is more of a survival situation sure. that they're doing sex work or maybe they're, you know, they're doing it to support a drug addiction or something like that or, you know, who knows people's circumstances. But there is this she sort of sounds like the the stereotypical happy hooker. Right. Yeah. 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 And she is a white woman who, you know. Um, she said she never had access to this kind of financial stability, so I don't know her background or anything like that. But not everybody is able to get a job. Not everybody who is a sex worker is able to get a job in a Nevada brothel like this. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I imagine actually they have pretty stringent like uh, requirements for for who can work there and all that. Uh, which whatever, I mean that's that's fine. It's their call. Uh, I think that you know one thing. I think the work, your point is totally, is totally valid. And it's so true that there's some people who just don't have like, like they can't think of a better route, you know, to go. And that's sad if it's not what they really want to do. I mean, obviously there's somebody who's loving what they're doing and yeah, you're right. Not everybody does. Yeah. Or what about people who are kidnapped or pimped or trafficked or whatever? Well, those are tragedies. Of course, that's not really somebody choosing sex work. Yeah. That's not even sex work. That's, that is like sex slavery, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's more slavery than work. But, you know, they say that the the amount, well, the book that I narrated, The Mm. Sex Workers and the Law, um, the authors really dug into the trafficking statistics. And there's there's numbers out there like there's, you know, hundreds of millions of people being trafficked in the United States and stuff like that. It's just not so like a lot of that is extreme, exaggerated numbers. To be sure, there are some cases of trafficking and pimping that do happen and sex slavery. And that's horrible. And of course, we don't support that. And it's bad. And that should not be confused with actual people who are voluntarily consensually doing sex work, which is the vast majority of sex workers that you will find. Yeah. I mean, I guess the the point I want to get to is that I look forward to a future where maybe all of this could be destigmatized, where sex work isn't seen. I mean, I get it. Like if you don't want to do sex work, you don't want to do sex work, you know, but I, I think there, there's a, there's a, a popular narrative out there that this is like demeaning stuff and that this is not okay. Uh, I mean, and even a lot of this trafficking that we're talking about, I think if, if you destigmatize, decriminalized sex work, a lot of these things could, could kind of fall away because it would be seen as no, this is a completely honorable profession. Um, you know, and, and then there wouldn't be, it wouldn't all be going underground and everything. Exactly. And bring it out of the shadows. Exactly. And people could have amazing experiences. I mean, a lot of the negative experiences that come with sex work and I've, I've had friends that are, that have been sex workers their whole lives. Mm -hmm. And you know, the negative experiences often come when they, when they don't have like a Nevada brothel, 
to back them up. Yeah. You know, they don't have some kind of industry that can actually support them when somebody pulls some bullshit, you know, when some some dude or whatever, you know. And, you know, even the Nevada brothels aren't perfect. I no, mean, no. yes, they are legal, but there's a lot of like weird contradictory laws. Like, for example, in Nevada, prostitution is only legal in these podunk counties that are outside of Las right. Vegas. There, It's not legal in Las Vegas, even though there is prostitution that goes on there. But these counties really uh, did it to generate a bunch of tax revenue and to make deal for the these good old boys clubs of politicians and local business owners. And most of those brothels are owned by men, hmm. you know, and they're connected to all the other city councilmen. And, yeah, sure. you know, um, <laughs> and they allow it because it makes a lot of money for the men in the good old boys club. And the reason that happened, you know, there's historical reasons. Read the, I mean, listen to the audiobook or read the book, Getting yeah. Screwed Sex Workers in the Law, to hear an extensive background on this. I recommend that. And I'm sure there's other resources out there too. But um, yeah, like the, a lot of the times the women aren't even allowed to really like live in the same county or to be, to like hang around the county when they're not working, nah. they can't really like be seen at like the Walmart or, you know, anything that because there's not much in those counties except a Walmart, really. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> they can't really like hang around except they have to like basically work and then get out. And they're really not they're not welcomed with open arms. They're kind of like, OK, well, I guess you can exist if you pay us off the politicians enough. Sure. But it, so it's even though it's legal, it's far from it's far from. Not it's far from destigmatized. Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying. Yeah, understood. Yeah. All right. Here's the fifth myth: sex workers are broken. Her parents must be proud. Get an education, sleaze. She must have daddy issues. I wonder how many drugs she needs to get through a shift. All of these are real comments I've heard online or in person. Says the author. The notion that my profession is a last resort for a broken, uneducated woman with a drug habit is a disservice to the range of people who choose to be sex workers. It's dehumanizing, and it allows continued violence and social stigma against sex workers to thrive. Keeping our industry in the shadows keeps an unfair power balance in the hands of law enforcement and clients who mean us harm. We are human beings who, for many different reasons, but one main one, to provide for ourselves, have chosen sex work as our occupation. It is a valuable and desired service and will always exist. So we need to bring sex work into the realm of decriminalization or legalization and provide safety, social services, and basic human rights to some of our most vulnerable in our society. Yeah, totally a cultural construct that, that people are broken uh, because you have other cultures where it's seen the ex and even historically where it's seen the exact opposite where no, you're not broken at all. Like you're, you're a sacred, you know, thing. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, yeah. Like a goddess. You're right. So that that's, that's horseshit, you know, that to say that, Oh, there's something wrong with them. No, that's totally, totally a cultural notion. Like, like across the board, that doesn't mean there aren't people that are sure, but there's people who are broken, who run fortune 500 yeah, who companies. Sex work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, give me a break. You <laughs> know, people who are broken, who are in the military and the government, Fuck yeah. the stock market, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, that that's, that's just to write people off like that. You could write off every fucking industry on planet earth with that claim. And it's not fair that, yeah. that that's just foolishness. It's really not fair. I agree. So I thought that was very interesting. That's A Day in the Life of Sex More by Sarah Greenmore. If she, if you want to go visit her, she says uh, in her bio, she's a courtesan working at the Moonlight Bunny Ranch located outside of Reno, Nevada. Woo. And she enjoys writing about sex work, social issues, and discussions on safe sex and human sexuality. 
So thank you, Sarah, for sharing a day in your life. Take a trip to the Bunny Ranch. You know, I've always kind of been curious. We've been close. Yeah. Well, not really, but I've always just been kind of curious what it would be like if I went to visit a hooker. And I bet they don't get many female clients. I bet they don't get any female. We've had the conversation. We've had the conversation. You know, we were were in town, but it didn't go that way. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of a pain in the ass to get there from Vegas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. It's like quite a ride. I'm sure if you really, we didn't want to that bad, but if we if we had wanted to, we could have, but not, not yet. Maybe for, (laughs) maybe for a later time. All right. Go to stuff.sexandsciencehour.com to sponsor a trip to Vegas for me and Brian to go visit a sex worker by shopping. Uh, Eventually, we'll keep saving those pennies. All right. There's more coming up here on Sex and Science Hour. Stay tuned. Yes. Tickle that Game Boy. (laughs) Wow. I was hearing the arpeggio, and I was like, "Oh the yeah, piano, yeah. like tickle those ivories." But tickle that Game Boy. They usually make this these chip tunes on a modified Game Boy. Yep, very special cartridge, LDJ. Oh well, that yeah. makes sense, yeah. right? DJ. <laughs> yeah, and the person who does our theme music is Roll Music. Roll Music knows about us. Um, found out about us years ago, but I don't know if they've kept in touch or if they listen to the show. But thank you, Roll Music, for your awesome chip tunes. Yes, everybody can check Roll Music out by googling, and we've had links to uh, to Roll Music's site in the in the uh, show notes for quite a while. But yes. Anyway, it's always good to have an update. I did actually put in new roll music songs uh, for the fourth segment. So that's what they've been up to, tickling the Game Boy. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so we got a question from somebody in our Facebook group. It's a very simple question, short and sweet. Have you ever dreamed of getting paid for testing sex toys? And then he linked to a website called lovewoo.co.uk, who was advertising a job for a sex toy reviewer. The locate. Listen to this. The location is London and remote. So two days a week you work from home. Mm-hmm. Three days a week you go into their office in London, and then you got the weekends off. Uh, the salary is twenty eight thousand pounds per year. Wow! But they provide private health insurance. They say we care about your health and provide private health care so that you don't need to worry about the NHS waiting lists or paying for the cost of the treatment. Well, that's interesting. In Very itself. interesting. And a discounted gym membership. And well, they give you your birthday off. Well, the thing I'll say to that, though, about the health insurance is, yeah, some of these like I read reviews for sex toys. Some of these sex toys are fucking brutal. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? Like the toy isn't a good product? No, it, it's a fine product. It's just it might be a particularly vicious product. Like you know, like you you read about not like Sibian style stuff, and the woman will say, okay, this it was like riding, you know, like a like a, a an eight cylinder engine or something. Like it was. Like, oh, you mean like it does not gentle on the genitalia? It's not gentle on the genitalia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. So. So yeah. health insurance might be. So you're saying they might need that health yeah, insurance. <laughs> yeah, because some of these toys are are something else these days, as I understand it. Jeez, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, I don't know how to feel about this. Let me read you a little bit more. Sure. Have, uh, here's the job description. Have you ever dreamed of getting paid for sex toys, for testing sex toys? Leading online adult store Love Woo wants to speak to you. Our diverse product range comprises sex toys, lingerie, games, and much more, and you'll be responsible for reviewing products assigned to you with honesty and care. 
Responsibilities. Test a variety of products you receive from LoveWoo. Decide why the product is hot, what could make it better, and give personal recommendations. Write a detailed, informative review of the product to a strict word count. Depending on the assignment, produce video reviews outside of the bedroom. Upload your reviews onto the website and use social media platforms to share them. Respond to customer queries and feedback for your reviews. Write clear, interesting features, tips and advice pieces, product roundups, and buying guides. Attend meetings and trainings with the team, work from home two days a week in office space three days, three days a week, become an advocate for the company, and represent our brand in the best way possible. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a full-time job. I mean... It is. Yeah, it is a full-time job, and they're not claiming it's part-time or anything like that. Yeah. But, you know, I just... They seem like a nice, progressive company and everything, mm-hmm. but the thing is, I just can't tell i i don't know if it's a conflict of interest you have to be a representative for the company they're going to want you to sell toys obviously that's the point of your job yeah but how are you supposed to write an honest review if the toy sucks right it's not going to sell any toys if it actually sucks oh well hopefully they're reviewing it like ahead of time and like it's before it goes to production you know no i think it's they don't produce sex toys. They just carry oh, them thought... and sell them. Most oh. of the sex toys sh- uh, stores or, or boutiques um, curate other people's toys, and they they'll carry products from uh, that are made by other companies. Oh, if they're not producing them, I don't see why she why you can't say it sucks. Like, well, I, because it wouldn't sell as many toys. The idea is to get the toy sold. Maybe they're helping determine the catalog or be a buyer too, but I don't know. That seems like it's outside of the job description. I don't know. To me, it just seems like it could be a potential conflict of interest. Uh-huh. Um, I I know that they say like on Amazon, they actually want, they would rather have a four-star review than a five-star review. Yeah. Because what they say is that a five-star review looks fake. That, oh, if the person couldn't find any any flaws with the product, well, obviously, they're just a paid shill. (laughs) But if they're doing a four-star review, it's like, well, I mostly liked it, but it wasn't perfect, and here's why. And it seems more honest. Mm. So I don't know if they want you to do a four-star review of everything, but um, it's an interesting idea. Now, I wonder, too, um, you know, I guess 28,000 pounds a year is, I would say... It's decent for somebody who's coming out of college, you know. That's like maybe twenty-eight thousand. Well, pounds. What's a pound to the dollar? Pounds Isn't it to like the dollar. Five, do- five bucks. To- oh no, no, no! It's like one point two five. Oh, that's all. Is a okay. dollar or all something right. like that? So it's about thirty. It's around mid thirty thousand dollar a year oh. range, I would say. Yeah, but for getting Plus off, benefits. I mean, well, yeah, but the fringe benefits. Are- well, the getting off is like a very small part of the job. It's mostly writing. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm doing videos and I social was- media. I was more concerned of, you know, not every toy is meant for solo work. Um, who do you have to work with? You know, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure they don't put that. I'm sure they don't assign you things unless. Yeah. Right. Are they going to be paying your partner if you're doing it with a partner? Well, I, don't I don't know. know. I, I mean, if you're testing a game, you kind of have to invite some friends over. You know? Yeah. Invite friends or if they're they have more than one person that does this. I mean, you're really going to become based upon the job description that I heard and understood. You're going to become a minor porn star right it's like it's half social media and it's half sex work yeah and twenty eight thousand pounds a year is not that much for sex work well it's better than a lot of porn stars are going to make these days really oh yeah oh the the porn industry's in fucking shambles i mean they can 
Yeah, that you might know. be true. I mean, I don't know. I haven't been in the market for this kind of job. I'm just saying, I'm just sort of weighing the pros and cons. I'm giving an honest review of the job, <laughs> the job description itself. Yeah. <laughs> now, I have actually toyed with the idea <laughs> of doing an independent sex toy review blog and podcast. I was thinking about doing something like this. Uh-huh. The problem is I just... I don't really like the limelight and I don't like social media. So I figured yeah. it wouldn't be the, oh, the route that. to go. But I would love to just test sex toys or just write reviews of the ones that I've used for my own pleasure and, uh, you know, get affiliate commissions if people find the review helpful and buy it. Now, I wanted to give a, a shout out to uh, Erica Moen of ojoysextoy.com. She is an independent blogger and she has a She's also a cartoonist, but she tests out sex toys and she does cartoon reviews of the sex toys. <laughs> she draws a comic for each one and they're really cute and they're very educational. She's very good in like the the world of like, you know, progressive sex of uh, pleasure focused sex education. Mm-hmm. Like her cartoons are educational as well as honest reviews. They show different types of toys, they compare them, the pros and cons. And um, it's all really, like, sex-positive and pleasure-focused. And she's got a Patreon as well as affiliate commissions on the toys. Now, I think that's a really interesting approach because she's combining two of her passions. I've heard some interviews with her. She seems really cool. Uh She's combining her passions, which are drawing or cartoonistry or whatever, comic drawing, with, uh, with sex and sex toys. Right. And I think she actually used to work in the sex toy industry. I don't know. It's been a while since I've heard the interviews. But I really like that model because she's not limited to reviewing toys for one company or one brand or anything like that. She can review whatever she wants as long as she thinks that it's going to be something she can draw a comic about and something people will like. But yeah. since she still has a Patreon, I don't know. Like, is she really – is it is it hard to make it in this business? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it sounds like brilliant entrepreneurship, but it's, you know, debatable whether or not she's making it. Yep. Um, you know, so, okay, something comes to mind for me. There is a claim that I have heard some women make that is that, uh, vibrators and varying sex toys do, uh, desensitize, uh, the clitoris Mm -hmm. and, you know, feeling overall over enough time and enough use, et cetera, as a doctor truth or, I mean, is there a truth to that? or what? So there's some truth to it. Okay. Um, it. There's grains of truth. It's not permanent. But having said that, over a masturbation session, if you use a vibrator, a vibrating toy on your junk for too long, genitals, mm-hmm. <laughs> for too long, got to get out of that habit of calling it junk because it's not junk. It's treasure. That was one of the first lessons I learned in podcasting you know, back <laughs> from the pork therapy days. Um, if you hold up a vibrating toy to your genitalia for too long, um, the nerves can compensate and adjust and will it will get less sensitive over time for some people okay just over that one masturbation session though it doesn't start to become like more of a long-term neurological adjustment because the brain is plastic right it's it's called neuroplasticity the brain can learn stuff it can tune up and tune down certain things like sensitivity sure and so if you always masturbate with a vibrating toy and you never do any other methods of achieving orgasm after a while, you can kind of your nerves can kind of ratchet up a little bit, and it becomes harder to orgasm without that vibration. If you find yourself in a situation where you don't have the vibrating toy, uh-huh. that's what people refer to as vibrator addiction. It's not really addiction; it's just that your body learns; it becomes very adept at getting off with the vibration, and it 
forget it forgets a little bit <laughs> how gotcha. to get off with other methods. But the good news is that it works the other way too. You can train yourself to get off via all different kinds of methods. All you have to do is kind of just stop using the vibrator if you feel like you're getting too desensitized to it. You just stop using it for a while. Rub yourself with your hand. If you don't come, then too bad you don't get to orgasm that day. Try again. Rub yourself with your hand again, and you'll probably get so horny that you'll just come, and then you'll learn to come that way again. You'll retrain yourself. Sure. <laughs> right. So, so it's, it's not, not permanent. It's not a permanent thing. No. Okay. Yeah. All right. So then the people that have said that are just, well, I they're think, buying into some woo-woo shit. I don't think they're buying into woo-woo shit. It's a real phenomenon, and for some people, it's a problem. I I just think that, part. you know what part of it is, I think? I think part of it is that there's a lot of buzz about porn addiction for men. Yeah. And how they say, oh, it can cause ED in young guys, erectile dysfunction, because they're jerking off to porn, and then pretty soon they can't get a boner with a real partner, like a real-life partner. Now... I don't have that equipment. I'm not, I have not, you know, lived as a man. I don't know uh-huh. what it's like to grow up on porn. I hear that this is a problem for some people, that they really do I can imagine this it is, is true. for some, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they have issues. And, and for them, some people say that, some people swear that going on a break from porn, a 30-day detox from porn, does wonders for their sex life. However, I also think that there are groups that co-opt that whole idea for their Mm -hmm. own agenda, like people who are anti-masturbation and anti-sex to begin with. Right. I see a lot of ads from Christian and Mormon groups talking about porn addiction, and they're not talking about it from a purely neurological perspective. They're talking about it from a spiritual perspective and a religious perspective. Right. So... You know, maybe there's some truth in there, too, but often it gets jumbled up with some stuff that's not factual and actually has an agenda. So as far as that, there's a lot of buzz about the male side of that, right, about porn addiction for men. I think there are some people who want to find a corollary for women. And so then they say, well, just like men can get addicted to porn, the the corollary for women is vibrator addiction. The devil's doorbell. Women can get addicted to their vibrators. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's not really true. And by all accounts, is what I understand, it really doesn't seem to be as big of a problem. At least it's not getting enough as much buzz as mm-hmm. the whole male porn addiction thing. I have heard a podcaster, sex nerd Sandra, I've heard her talk about a period of her life where she thought that she was getting some vibrator addiction. And in her own words, she was saying that she was using vibrating toys so much to get off. And she, I think, was working in the sex toy industry as well at that point. It was before she became a podcaster. So what she did was just went on a vibrator diet and she didn't allow herself to use it every time she came. And then eventually the problem resolved for her. But she had to sort of consciously take a break from it. Okay. So. Well, yeah, I I bring that up only because... You know, if you go to become a sex toy reviewer, I mean, if there was actual permanent damage, like some have claimed that I've seen, uh, then, yeah, that could be a real, like, this job yeah, could no, be hazardous. It's it's not. <laughs> yeah, good point. It's not permanent. And, it's, right. it, you know, few things are permanent. I mean, some things are, right? If you lose a limb, obviously it's permanent. But, yeah. you know, the brain and the nervous system are remarkably plastic plastic peripheral nerves can grow back and heal from damage so there's a lot that can be um there's a lot about your body that can be retrained and redone now one more point on this okay um it's not just christian and mormon groups that can be sort of Mm anti-vibrator anti-masturbation and anti-porn 
I've heard it even from the Eastern spirituality side. Yep. For example, Lao Tzu is big on it. Oh yeah, Lao Tzu. Of course, yeah. Going back thousands of years yeah. in the in the Chinese tradition about don't you know release the the essence of male power comes from the semen <laughs> and you shouldn't release it. And then there were these cults of women that would try to get this to suck the the man power out of all the men. <laughs> That's kind of hot, I have to say. Yeah. I think that's going to be a basis for one of my stories in paleoerotica. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I've, I was actually listening to a podcast about something called orgasmic meditation. And this is a practice of basically there's a stroker and a strokey. I'm I'm not going to explain it as well as the experts on it can, mm-hmm. obviously, because I'm just hearing about it for one time. But basically, um, there's a stroker and the strokey. The strokey has a clitoris, and basically the stroker strokes the clitoris in rhythmic, like a specific rhythmic pattern with lube or oil for 15 minutes. Okay. And no more, no less. Okay. And anything can happen in that time frame. Orgasm is not a requirement, but it may happen. Okay. Um, and the idea is sort of like to focus that kind of sexual attention and love on a woman or a person with a clitoris on their body. And so the person that was a practitioner of that that I was hearing, and I'm sorry, I forgot their name, but she said that um, men have porn and they get this hard, like, crazy amount of stimulation from porn. Porn is made to, is designed to be overstimulating, basically. And so when they get sensitized to that, sometimes it's hard to come back down to earth with a real partner and really tune into that more subtle and more realistic kind of pleasure that, mm-hmm. that you can get from a real human being as opposed to porn, with, which is designed to be overstimulating. And she said that the corollary for that is women. Women, when they don't have the true intimacy and love with their partner, according to her... They can get fixated on vibrators because it's like a focused, strong, overstimulating kind of sensation for them. Okay. So I'm, I just hear a lot of similarities between the whole like Christian nofap groups and what she was saying, but ah. not coming from a Christian perspective at right. all. So I just think that's interesting that, you know, there's... There's all kinds of attitudes and beliefs and thoughts about sex. Here on this show, I mean, I'm not going to claim that it's bad to masturbate. I just won't. I'm sorry. It's like really hard for me to say that. Of course, if it's causing a problem for you, if you feel compelled to just masturbate all day and you can't get anything else done, yeah, obviously that's a problem. But right. for most people, I, I don't think they have that problem and there's so much sex phobia and sex negativity and anti-masturbation sentiment in our culture that I think it's it's easy to go that way it's easy to err on that side of being a little masturbation phobic versus um being pro masturbation mm-hmm. does that make sense what I, I don't think that makes sense I'm saying that I would rather err on the side of being pro masturbation than join the rest of the cultural chorus of anti-masturbation sentiment. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's nothing wrong with masturbation. I right. Mean... Yeah. <laughs> like... That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that turned into a long segment. But 
Never fear. Um, so the question was, did we ever dream about being paid to test sex toys? Yes, that would be fun. I'm not sure about it, but um, and I have another job, but that would be a great job, I'm sure, for somebody out there who's adept at social media and loves to get down with their bad selves. <laughs> I don't know if I'd be a good uh, I don't know if I'd be a good test subject for that sort of thing, like because I, I have a very overactive imagination and uh, I, I don't think that or not. Over, I don't know if that's the right term. I have a very powerful imagination. How about that? And like I, I can get like my results of how well something gets me off because I would certainly be running some kind of fantasy in my head probably doesn't uh, correlate well with the rest of, you know, or with much of society. So I, I think I'd be, as much as I wouldn't mind it, I think, you think I'd be you'd a have iconoclastic subject. opinions about the sex toys. Not iconoclastic, <laughs> but they just, they'd be different, you know? All right. Well, Brian's always proving himself to be different, ever the contrarian. Hey. <laughs> That's going to do it for us this week on Sex and Science Hour, but never fear. The after show is here. We're Ooh. kind of doing a sex toy review without being focused solely on sex toys. So if you want to hear that, tune in. If not, we understand. We'll see you next week over at sexandsciencehour.com. You've just heard Sex and Science Hour. Game over. Play again next week. of all kinds of stuff that can be found at stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. Yeah. Brian, did you just hear like a wail in the background, like a no, moan? I think it was me. Oh, that was you? I think I made some kind of a sound. <laughs> I thought it was a, a, basically a werewolf in the backyard, and I was a little freaked out. But now no. that you said that, I feel much more confident. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pay no attention to uh, the claws that are coming out of my <laughs> <laughs> the hair that's sprouting from your chest, yeah. the way your ears are growing more and pointy by the day and your canines are getting longer. Vulcan. <laughs> anyway, on the after show, we talk about the stuff that was purchased through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. And you're in luck because if you want an easier way to reach that website, just go to our main website, sexandsciencehour.com. If you ever forget or whatever, you can click through the links there and they're very easy to see thanks to the recent update, update that we did on the website. Yeah. So anyway... We got an email from somebody, and I called it, Don't Mention This Book. Don't Mention This Book? Yes. They said, and it was totally anonymous. Okay, we got it through our contact form on our website. They said, hey there, I don't know if you're still playing catch up with the Amazon purchases during the after show or whatnot. If you are and you get a book called and you get to a book called something like a unique eclectic book of essays, I just wanted to say I don't think it's worth mentioning. 
If you you can if you want, but trust me, it's not a very good book. I bought it as an inside joke for someone, and then after skimming through it, I decided against giving it to them, and I wish I hadn't spent the ten bucks on it. I did just buy some great toilet paper, though. Very useful. <laughs> so the irony, of course, is that by emailing us and by us reading the email, we have mentioned the unmentionable. <laughs> But I think that's valuable feedback, right? I don't remember doing that book. I think it, it kind of rings a bell, but I don't remember if we talked about it or not. But um, thanks for the feedback saying that book wasn't very good. That's weird. You know, I wonder sometimes if this happens with some podcasts, especially some larger ones where there's like massive groups uh-huh. uh, involved, where the, like maybe they do something like this that we're talking about. And say, like, your arch enemy is in the same group with you for this podcast that you both happen to love. Uh-huh. And your arch enemy is a big fan of, I don't know, Tchaikovsky or something. And you buy some book that just, like, rips on Tchaikovsky. <laughs> and just to hear it mentioned and just to have the, the hosts, like, talk about it. And, like, oh. you're just trolling people. Well, I right think this left. has actually happened. I can imagine. No, I mean, I can think of a specific example on the show. On this was, show? Yeah, there was somebody who admitted that they bought a couple of oh, books that they already owned just so that we would talk about them. The Hoppe books. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> That's but, exactly but, what right. I'm talking but it, about. But that, that, was, that was only like, <laughs> that was only one degree away because <laughs> that was to get me pissed off. Yeah. I'm talking about worked. to get like another fan like pissed off. Like like, like you know, starting a pod beef and, invo- and dragging us into the middle of it. Well, yeah, if you want to start a pod beef, by all means do. Just make sure you go to stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. <laughs> and thank you for buying that toilet paper through stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. By the way, I have an update myself, actually. A while ago, I think it was earlier this season, somebody bought bamboo toilet paper. Oh, yeah. And I said, wow. That sounds neat. I have to try that. Yep, add to cart. I added it to my cart, and the next time I made a purchase on Amazon, I bought that doggone bamboo toilet paper. Yep. And wouldn't you know it, it's really bad. It's terrible. (laughs) Yeah, and I have so much of it, and I'm trying to use it up. I use it every day. I'm like, curses, this bamboo toilet paper. I mean, it's not that bad. It's just very, it's very thin, you know, and it doesn't feel that nice. Well, yeah, I mean, this this is the the uh this is the crux right this is the problem is that the catch-22 is that like to use it up you know you're willing to drink a ton of milk of magnesia right (laughs) but but the problem is i'm not maybe you are well i am okay the problem (laughs) is is that this stuff isn't strong enough to handle the shit that comes out of my ass when i drink milk of magnesia so it's like okay you're drinking the milk of magnesia to clean this shit there you know to use up this toilet paper but you can't use this toilet paper for what you're doing with that milk of magnesia god damn it yep it's It's very it's a hard frustrating a hard life all right (laughs) i thought it was going to be all great for the environment i was like yeah it doesn't have any toxic bleaches and dioxins and parabens in it because you know like the the puss is like the most sensitive area of the body. It's very absorbent. You don't want any of that nasty, unorganic shit in there. So I thought I'd buy bamboo toilet paper. But uh, no, it didn't quite work out. It's The technology has got a little bit of ways to go still. <laughs> Think all that milk of magnesia we bought. Uh, uh. Well, that was a good purchase, let me tell you. <laughs> Sometimes. We just drink it for fun on a Friday night. <laughs> got a bottle of After the, the sex and a- science hour, of course. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Shall we continue? Yeah, I think so. All right. So, Brian. Yes. You will be very happy to know that 
somebody, and we think we might know who, bought your favorite book. My favorite book? Not favorite. Oh, but I was going to say, bought a book that shit. you are a big fan of, and the book that you have recommended on the show, and also in our Sex and Science Hour Facebook group recently. Okay. It's called Drugs as Weapons Against Us. All right, all right hold on. Calling me a big fan of this book is is a misnomer. Like that's okay. So you didn't. You're not a fan. Let me revise that. You've read this book, or you've read some of the book. You started to read it. You found it incredibly depressing, but fascinating at the same time. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. So drugs is weapon against us. I'll be very quick. By John. Potash. Potash is all, and this is a guy who is like knee deep in Black Panther stuff. I mean, like he's written other books, all of which are phenomenal. Uh, this book is, is a very well done book. L- near literally every single sentence is just jam packed with information. I cannot, this book's like in four sections. The first section will take you, I mean, depending on how you read, of course, it'll take you a long time. Even if you're a fast reader, uh, it, I had to stop. I had to take breaks. I usually read a book straight through. I I'm a completionist. I have to finish the book Mm. before I move on to the next one. Not so with this book because I was scared of what I was becoming reading this book. Um, what were you becoming a paranoid conspiracy? No, 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 not paranoid. Like I was getting really, really angry. And I was, so I, I have a lot of people that I really, that I deeply care about who are very much into, you know, doing the various drugs that this book's, this book talks about and everything. And I was getting really angry about these drugs and everything. And I just, honestly, I had to stop and say, no, you know, I better quit this or I'm going to end up like, you know, (laughs) being some kind of crazy anti-drug activist or something, you know, which I don't want to be because I don't care what people do. They can rock and roll. And have a great time with this stuff and whatever. And and by all means, like, like enjoy life. That is my number one priority for myself and anybody else. Okay. But like this, this book is so well done. I, I dare say it's irrefutable. It is absolutely irrefutable. It is. I've read some parts of it too. And it is fascinating. It's gripping. It draws you in. You can't stop reading every sentence. As you said, is just action-packed or or Mm fact-packed you know it's just so dense with information and it builds this web it just paints this picture explaining all the key people who are involved the central thesis of the book is basically that drugs such as lsd opium lsd opium too yeah yeah um and even other drugs as well mdma perhaps Mm -hmm. heroin cocaine um but I would say LSD is one of the strongest cases that they did, that they talk about. Yeah. And he's not the only one who's talked about this either. But um, those drugs were purposefully and deliberately introduced into various groups, usually leftist groups or social progressive groups, yeah. um, as, an, as a deliberate attempt to control, to disperse them, to yeah. make it so that they could not attain their objectives – to throw a curveball at them. And in in many cases, it was done by dosing people without their consent. Yeah, like lacing furniture uh, and Inviting parties. all these people to parties in these... Um, and we're talking like world leaders doing yeah. this shit. I mean, like, it's, it's really... And again, the evidence is really fucking hard. The footnotes are as long as the book. 
And they were talking about trash cans full of punch at Grateful Dead concerts that they just poured LSD into. Yeah. Like CIA operatives or whoever, government operatives. Right. I mean, I don't think a lot of people would disagree that that would would not believe that that happened because it did happen. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that this is an alternative narrative as to why. Yes. A lot of this stuff happened. Yeah. And I mean, it goes into Laurel Canyon. It goes into all these different things. And I mean, shit, like I, you know, you read it and you, you don't know what to do about it. You know, I mean, I have the fortunates of, or I don't see that's a judgment. Um, I, for whatever reasons, I wouldn't say it's fortuitous or maybe I'm missing out on a huge part of life. I'm not going to write that fact off or I'm not going to write that possibility off. Um, you know, I, I've never been into drugs. Yeah. It's just, it's never been Same on. here. You and I share that. We are yeah. so not interested. Yeah. I mean, it's fine that people are. Okay. It's just, I'm, I'm not, I'm not into it. And, and I, I guess I just want what, what I really want out of this. I want somebody who is into this scene to read the book. Tell me where it's wrong. I want the counterpoints, you know, that that's, that's what I need for this. And, you know, one, a person could come out and say that, okay, yeah, maybe they would say, no, no, John Potash is right across the board, but that doesn't mean, you know, but it's not a package deal. It doesn't mean that LSD isn't still helpful. It for doesn't mind mean that expansion or for getting away from authoritarianism or whatever. Yeah. All of that. Okay. You know, it's just that they were, it was used for very nefarious reasons, but I need somebody to tell me that I need somebody to come. I need somebody like really almost line by line to explain it to me. And then I need to hear their justification. Um, and then maybe I'll feel better about this book. This book is fucking depressing. Mm, it's um, very depressing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, like I, I've never encountered a book that I had to take in chunks, you know, and that I couldn't take as a whole. I had to take this in chunks because it was just that. And, and you know, I have a bias, like I was saying, part of the problem there is, is that there's a bias of, Oh, I didn't fall for the trap. You right. Know? And I, and I yeah, start to feel right. and, and I feel good about myself, but yeah. then I feel angry about everything else. Yeah. But I have to put myself in check and say, wait a minute, I have a bias. But then that's the thing, right, is that everybody that's into the scene also has the opposite bias, mm-hmm. you know, and but they're not always so will or I shouldn't say that often they're not willing, it seems, to put that bias in check like I'm willing to. Yeah. You know. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, and the thing is, is the people that don't do drugs are the odd, are the odd people out yeah, and they've been that way for a very long time. So, I mean, I think there's some sections of this book, like the first, the first couple chapters, I don't think anybody would argue about the fact that opium was used uh, by the British to control the Chinese. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of these other little things back in like 19th century. Yeah. Well, that's far removed in history. So it's easier to see. Right. When they start talking about how they, they were using these drugs to control like John Lennon and Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain and Tupac. Right. Well, then people will start to go, Oh my God, that's hitting a little too close to home. I can't believe it. Right. Yeah. So that's what I need is just, and I'm open to it. You know, I'm actually open to the idea that I'm dead wrong and that John Potash is dead wrong, but I need somebody to do that for me. You know, I need somebody to like really, be able to falsify it because I am never like I'm, I'm already, I'm too far removed. I'm not in the scene. So it'd be so much more work for me to go through the whole process as to where I think if somebody, I think it would behoove people that are very, very, you know, drug positive to debunk the shit out of this book um, or make sure nobody ever reads it one or the other. Mm. You know, 
I might reach out to this guy and ask him if he wants an audiobook because I would love I think this is fascinating. I would love to do a deep dive on this book. Sure. Um, you know, read it. I think it's good. It can never hurt, even if you think you're going to disagree with something or you do disagree with something. It never hurts to read things you disagree with. Uh, it can hurt. Well, if it's depressing. Yeah, it I guess. can hurt. This book might drive you to drugs if you're so <laughs> yeah, depressed. I'm about that close. <laughs> Let me just read you the synopsis here. Drugs as Weapons Against Us meticulously details how a group of opium trafficking families came to form an American oligarchy and eventually achieved global dominance. This oligarchy helped fund the Nazi regime and then saved thousands of Nazis to work with the Central Intelligence Agency. CIA operations such as MKUltra pushed LSD and other drugs on leftist leaders and left-leaning populations at home and abroad. Evidence supports that this oligarchy further led the United States into its longest-running wars in the ideal areas for opium crops, while also massively funding wars in areas of cocoa coca plant abundance for cocaine production under the guise of a war on drugs that is actually the use of drugs as a war on us. Drugs as Weapons Against Us tells how scores of undercover U.S. intelligence agents use drugs in the targeting of leftist leaders from SDS to the Black Panthers, Young Lords, Latin Kings, and the Occupy movement. It also tells how they particularly targeted leftist musicians, including John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, and Tupac Shakur, to promote drugs while later murdering them when they started sobering up and taking on more leftist activism. The book further uncovers the evidence that intelligence agents dosed Paul Robeson with LSD, gave Mick Jagger his first hit of acid, hooked Janis Joplin on amphetamines, as well as manipulating Elvis Presley, Eminem, the Wu-Tang Clan, and others. Yeah. I mean, even the description is written kind of like the book. It's just incredibly dense. And you're like, wait a minute, what? What yeah. are you saying? <laughs> Hold on. I need time to process But it, it. pays that tease. I guarantee. Yeah. I, like I'm telling you, it pays every ounce of that tease. If you love a good conspiracy book... Oh, man, this is a book for you. You got to get it. Okay, one more time. Drugs as Weapons Against Us by John L. Potash or Potash. Yeah, I like saying Potash. (laughs) Potash. Potash. (laughs) Anyway, okay. What else did people buy? (laughs) That's the only book in our book department this week. We had a a bunch of boxes of tea. We had Stash Lemon Ginger Herbal Tea. Doesn't that sound good? We had Stash Moroccan Mint Green Tea. We had Twinings Every Day, I guess it's just uh, regular black tea, Stash Breakfast in Paris tea, mm. and in the Amazon fashion department, this is cool, um, a My Little Pony Girls Pinkie Pie hoodie. So it has like a pony mohawk, like it has the hood and it has the ears and the little pony mane mm-hmm. when you pull it up and a picture of Pinkie Pie on the front. Very cute. Uh, we had some makeup, Tarte Amazonian Clay 12-hour full coverage SPF 15 with uh, medium beige with pink undertones. So this is like foundation with um, sunblock in it. Right. Which, you know, a lot of people swear by, especially if you live in a sunny area. We had the Scooby Apocalypse comic number 15 and Woo. number 16. Woo. What is the Scooby Apocalypse comics? So it's uh, it's part of the kind of DC, DC has a deal with Hasbro where, or um, uh, Hanna-Barbera, more particularly, sorry, not Hasbro. Uh, the IDW has a deal with Hasbro. 
Um, but yeah, they, they have a deal with the Hanna-Barbera with their properties and they do varying comic books. There's future quests. One of them is Scooby Apocalypse. Scooby Apocalypse is Scooby-Doo that takes place somewhat in the future after like kind of this like zombie invasion style thing. Um, anyway, it's really wild. It, it's very, very cool. Like it's Scooby-Doo being really, really action packed and cool. Uh, I love it. One of my favorite comics going right now. Very cool. Uh, somebody bought a silent mouse, the Logitech M330 Silent Plus Wireless Large Mouse in gray. Uh, silent mouses are very important. I'm using one right now because you don't want clicks in your podcasts or audiobooks. Yeah. We had a pack of two uh, cooling gym towels. Oh, are these the kind? I think you can put them in the freezer. Uh Oh, no. <laughs> Environmental reuse. Soak it, wring out excess water, and wear it. To reactivate it, just re-wet it. So it's like an evaporation cooling thing, I guess. That's cool. Um, What else? Revenger in paperback by Alistair Reynolds, winner of the 2017 Locus Award. All right. The galaxy is filled with treasures if you have the courage to find them Duh. in a world. <laughs> Uh, we also had the Panda 300 megabyte per second, megabits per second, wireless and USB adapter for 14 bucks. Nice. Oh, here's that book. <laughs> <laughs> A unique eclectic book of essays. This is the book that the guy says is shit, is not good, by John Joseph Mack Jr. Now I'm, now I'm just curious about this. An essayist who is a rationalist that maintains a laconic style, whatever that means, John Mack titles his essays to the point. Being an ice cream vendor, the good humor man, however, forces him to be flavorful, if you will. <laughs> what? what the fuck? Since all the essay titles are dry but to the point, the exception being the one poem with a title that automatically conjures up a play on the little on the title word wondering, to wit the word wandering, his original title for the manuscript was A Rational View of Subjects, an anthology, but then he realized it was too droll sounding and came up with a unique book of eclectic essays, or a unique eclectic book of essays, which is exactly what it is. Besides, who doesn't like the word eclectic? It's also a good thing that he graduated from Southern Illinois University, where first his creative juices started to flow. What the fuck? <laughs> Definitely sounds laconic. That's yeah. fucking weird. Wow. <laughs> very, very weird. And the the cover looks like a kid drew a picture of a rocket ship or something. This <laughs> kind of funny. All right. Well, we did mention the book. Too bad. <laughs> the o Odroid XU4 case. Uh, it's a clear case. It looks like for a computer, but I don't know what an Odroid is. Um Recommended to protect the Odroid XU4 board from accidental oh, damage. Oh, it's like a Raspberry Pi. I guess so, yeah. Okay, here's another book. I'm sorry, I've lied. There are more books. The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Oh. Le Guin. Oh, yes. winner. Oh, I love yeah. that book. I Granted, I know that that book now probably seems tame. At the time, boy, especially, I read that when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And, like, just the mentions of sex was... Wow. Remarkable. Very cool. You know, I, I yeah, I, I love the shit out of that book. And there, there's still some very revolutionary things said in it. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, granted, unfortunately, certain anarchist circles don't consider it legitimate because it's not capitalist. It's quite the opposite. But um, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Wagging my finger. Yep. Shame, shame. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for now. Well, should I say what I bought on Amazon? What did you buy? Tell me all about it. I bought 
I am a guilty addict of reality TV shows. Oh, I admit it. (laughs) I've been watching a show called The Spouse House where they there's like you have been watching this show. (laughs) Brian refuses to watch it, which is fine. I'm not going to subject you to any torture here. (laughs) Uh, They go. It's like (laughs) the premise is single people move into a house and they meet each other as men and women. It's all heterosexual. Okay. So they're looking for hetero matches and they're trying to meet each other and get engaged and married in the spouse house within like six or seven weeks or something. And at every week there's an engagement ceremony. And if nobody proposes, then two people get evicted and they have to vote on who's the least likely to get married and they get kicked out. And two new singles get brought in. It's like Survivor for relationships. Yeah, it, it is. is the most. I was confused. Like I was watching <laughs> it and I, I don't think I'm a dumb person. I was, I, <laughs> I was absolutely. I'm like, wait a minute. What's going on? Like, I don't. Uh, yeah. I was skeptical. You know, I've really I only started watching it because Married at First Sight was over. (laughs) We've already reviewed that. I love any reality show where they have to get married. And especially if there's like pressure to get married or if it's forced, the better. Because it shows what a sham it is. (laughs) And everybody's so like traditional gender roles and stuff. And it's just hilarious because it ends up blowing blowing up in their faces. And it's just... It shows that that's not enough. You know, yes, some people can be happy with traditional marriage and traditional gender roles. Totally. It's not, for some people, that works really well. But it is not a sufficient condition for a happy marriage because these people are following the script to the letter and they still have tons of drama and they're not happy. So Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got nothing. Cause... Well, I bought Spouse House a season pass <laughs> on Amazon because I like to watch it. <sighs> Amazing. All right, that's and it. I for, think we're going to have to call it quits. What? Uh, not not to say how I know, but it is not available on torrent sites. So if anybody says, why wouldn't he torrent it for you? Um, well, there you go. You know, my man does a lot of things for me, but torrenting <laughs> spouse house is where he reaches his breaking point. <laughs> he was not willing. <laughs> the line must be drawn here. This far, no farther. No farther. I will make them pay for what they've done. <laughs> That was so good. The best Picard ever. And you're even bald, too, to boot. Thank you. All right. This is going to do it for us. This has been Sex and Science Hour. Back at you next Friday with a new show. In the meantime, sexandsciencehour.com. Go shopping. Stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. And thanks so much for tuning in. (laughs) 